0: So to quickly uh, recap our study of Philippians, obviously we have been looking at the book of Philippians for quite a few weeks now. And last week we looked at Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. So to quickly recap our study of Philippians from last week, we see that Paul invited the church of Philippi to imitate his example and not be deceived by other so-called Christians who were living as enemies of the cross. And instead of having a mindset on earthly things, true Christians live with a conscious awareness that their citizenship is in heaven. Pastor Sean used the term the politics of heaven last week. A little bit different there, a little bit different way of saying it, but citizenship in heaven. He encouraged them in those verses, in that part of the letter, to love the Lord, long for the Lord, and ultimately remain firm in the Lord. So this morning as we begin in chapter 4, verse 2, If you happen to not have a Bible or don't have a device with a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. You can find that scripture on page 982 in our, in our uh, Bibles that are in the pews there. So verse two, Paul references a problem in the church. Throughout this letter, Paul has focused a lot on the topic of unity. If you, re- if you recall, if you remember what was happening in Philippi, the Christians there were coming under increased persecution from the world around them. Paul was their friend, their mentor, and he had been imprisoned. And it seems that even some of them had been arrested as well. Well, this naturally led to feelings of worry, doubt, anxiety, fear, self-protection, and possibly disunity within the church. And Paul repeatedly reminded them that they are all in this together. They are a family. They are a body. They are a unified whole. And they need to go forward together as one, serving one another looking out for one another, and encouraging one another in Christ. But now he zooms into a very specific instance of disunity within the church, speaking to two women by name, Euodia, and I looked up the pronunciation, Syntyche, or you can resort to Syntyche, but I'm going to go with Syntyche, Probably these are both names that you haven't considered lately for uh, girl names here in the last few years. But these are the two names that we have this morning. So, Euodia and Syntyche. These two ladies had labored side by side with Paul in his ministry. Yet, sadly, he has heard that they'd had a falling out. We don't know what the disagreement was about. The Bible doesn't tell us. But apparently, it was a big enough deal to reach Paul's ears. Because remember, Paul was in prison. This wasn't uh, the days of you just grab a cell phone and communicate with someone. For this to get all the way to Paul was sort of a big deal. In fact, these ladies may have been among the Gentile women who were in prayer when Paul first preached the gospel and Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 13. I'll read that verse for you. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. We're somewhat um, making an assumption here, just because of the fact that these ladies were uh, leaders within the church. But still, we think that they had been with Paul, with Philippi, the church at Philippi, for quite some time. Now think about it. When Paul calls them out this way, is he being insensitive? Didn't he know this could ruffle some feathers? Didn't he know this could hurt some feelings? Keep in mind that the passage suggests, again, that they were two of the church's leaders since in verse 3, which is coming up here in just a moment, he refers to them as fellow workers. They were active members of the congregation, perhaps deaconesses in the church of Philippi, and not people you would expect to cause an issue. Notice that the word used in the ESV, it's probably not a word we use every day commonly But the word entreat is used. The word entreat means to urge or to appeal or to ask someone earnestly to do something. I believe Paul's love and tender heart for them is evident by the way in which he addresses this issue. First of all, he addresses both women individually by name, And he's essentially saying to them, I beg you to agree in the Lord. This is not a heavy-handed reprimand, but instead a loving entreaty for unity. I think that Paul's words would have been received by them as very gracious and gentle, but also very direct. I believe they truly would have sought to repent and mend their differences. A couple of other things about this, we can't know for sure, but this disagreement is probably not a major doctrinal issue, or else Paul would have addressed that head on. Paul was never one to shrink away from addressing an issue, addressing uh, false doctrine. It could have been a secondary doctrinal issue, or just simply a personality difference. Whatever it was, we see the most important thing was that Paul wanted them to solve the disunity because their disagreement was hurting the rest of the church and its reputation, the church's reputation. To let the problem go on would be contrary to the mutual love that is, to characterize followers of Jesus, and it would bring harm to the cause of the gospel and would ultimately rob the church family of joy. We who are in the body of Christ have the makings of great unity with each other, so long as the Lord Jesus is kept in his proper place in our lives. You know, in fact, it's not even a a unity that we need to muster up or we need to create. That unity has already been given to us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul said, I'll read these verses. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness If we love Jesus Christ with all our heart and if we rejoice in the things that we have in common with Christ and if we prioritize our common bond in him, then we won't have to make ourselves united. We'll already be united. We might disagree on some secondary issues. We might not see eye-to-eye on every theological point or on how every passage of Scripture should be interpreted and applied. But these differences won't become a barrier to our relationship with each other if we keep Jesus Christ and the authority of his word first. So in this verse, uh, verse 2, again, I entreat Euodia, and to agree in the Lord. We haven't really touched on those last four words. Agree in the Lord. How can we define what that means? I don't think it means to simply agree. Paul is not telling them to just halfway, you know, meet halfway and just compromise. You know, let's just, all right, whatever. And we'll just kind of get along. But I believe that it means that you value the things that you agree upon because of your shared connection to Christ more than you value the things that you disagree upon let me let me say that one more time i believe it means that you value the things that you agree upon because of your shared connection to Christ more than you value the things that you disagree upon In other words, we should have harmony as Christians. I have a musical background. I obviously, maybe some of you don't like it, but I like to sing. I mean, you don't like listening to me, uh, is what I'm saying. Not that you don't like to sing. Um, But I, I love music, and I love hearing good music, and I love hearing the harmony. But I could walk over to the piano right now, and I could just... Beat on that piano and just just like a you know a six month old would or something like that, not that i 'm putting down six month olds but um, and there 'd be no harmony there 'd be no melody there would be nothing it would be just a it 's called in music a cacophony you know it would be dissonant, and we as christians aren 't to interact like that we 're to have Harmony, where we can hear all the music, the melody, the, the perfect rhythm, all these things. We should find common ground as Christians. This is identical to what Paul had said previously in chapter 2, verse 2, when he wrote, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This was a calling to unity of purpose, a unified mind of humility, service, forbearance, love, and patience toward others. This was a plea from Paul to be like Christ, to think, to act, to relate to others more like him, like Christ. Even though these women were leaders in the church, even though they were active in their Christian service, and even though in verse 3, that we'll get to here in just a moment, it says that their names are in the book of life, they had closed God out of this part of their hearts. It seems they were willing to serve God Everyone except each other. In other words, they had blind spots in their lives. I think we, all of us, need to hear this valuable lesson. Sometimes we need a reorientation of our hearts when it comes to ourselves and others. The way of thinking, acting, and feeling that we should be imitating was modeled for us and bought for us when when God the Son, Jesus Christ, was willing to do it himself through his perfect life and sacrificial death when he died for undeserving sinners like you and me. Because of his great love for us, he was willing to be maligned, Mistreated, accused, abandoned, wronged, offended, tortured, and murdered, and yet he never held a grudge, never acted in bitterness, never turned self-centered, and he calls us to follow in his same footsteps in every area of our lives. Continuing in verse 3, Paul asks a true companion or true comrade to assist him in helping these women who have labored side by side in the gospel. The Greek word for companion pictures two oxen in a yoke pulling the same load. A companion is a partner or an equal in a specific endeavor. In this case, a spiritual one. This true companion is unnamed, but it's best if we take the Greek word translated companion as a proper name. And this proper name is, again, I got the pronunciation, I think, Susigos. So it's S-Y-Z-Y-G-O-S. Probably, again, not a real popular boy's name. He was likely one of the church elders we see back in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul also mentions a man called Clement. We don't know who Clement was except that he worked with Paul, Euodia, and Syntyche, and other unnamed ministry colleagues. There was a notable Clement in the early church who was the leader of the church in Rome and wrote two preserved letters to the church in Corinth. Yet we don't know if this is the same Clement. It was a common name in the Roman world. Paul refers to all these people as his co-workers and mentions that their names are written in the book of life. To have one's name written in the book of life is another way of saying that we share eternal life together and are going to heaven soon and we'll be together forever in eternity. While these others are unnamed and unknown to us. God knows them, and their names have been recorded. Their service and ministry is not remembered by us today in particular, but it is remembered by God. So Paul, in essence, is telling these fellow believers who have their name written in the book of life that this is a whole church at Philippi issue Not just a them issue. Not just these two ladies issue. This is so much more than just these two women. This is a whole church problem. When any part of the body is hurting, the entire body is affected. And it takes the whole to help heal the parts. We are one in Christ. So we can't turn a blind eye to any part that is broken That would be acting in self-protection and self-centeredness. Instead, in love and humility, we are to join with one another, help one another, walk with one another in healing what is hurting. In verse 4, we see kind of all of a sudden after talking about unity, uh, helping These two ladies in this situation, Paul shifts to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Think about it. This advice comes from a man in chains facing death. A man who has been stoned and beaten and hounded by the mob. So after begging them, after begging these people to be reconciled in verses 2 and 3, Paul now commands them to rejoice. In other words, we must be reconciled with each other, with others, in order to be in the right frame of mind to be able to rejoice and worship. Experiences which leave others sour and bitter leave Paul overflowing with joy. How is that? This is a commandment to every Christian, every believer. Rejoice in the Lord always. That means regardless of the day, whether it's dark or bright, whether it's difficult or easy, whether it brings problems and temptations or clear sailing, we are commanded to rejoice. And in case we missed it, he repeats it. Again, I say, rejoice. But that's not easy to do. Joy is something we cannot produce in and of ourselves. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul's joy wasn't based on a sunny optimism or positive mental attitude, as much it was the confidence that God was in control. It wasn't that Paul was reading the latest self-help book, and trying to muster up some kind of a a, a joy, a happiness. It really was a joy in the Lord. This joy is unrelated to the circumstances of life, but related to an unassailable, unchanging relationship to the sovereign Lord. How do most of us live? We mostly, our, our joy, so often is dependent on our circumstances. So, can we rejoice despite difficult cir- circumstances? The reason we can do this always is that neither Christ, and, and if you don't get anything else from my sermon today, get this, is that neither Christ nor our relationship with him ever changes. For those who are Christ, even though circumstances can change, we can always rejoice in the Lord. If we're honest, sometimes our circumstances are so painful, it's difficult to rejoice in anything, even in the Lord. Conversely, other times, our circumstances are so good that it's hard to rejoice in the Lord because we're so satisfied elsewhere. We've forgotten about the Lord. We haven't even thought to... To think that maybe those good things, those good circumstances were coming from the Lord. But the truth is, and the whole argument of the book of Philippians, is that the more we know Christ in our hearts and minds, the more we see His heart through the Word of God, and through the Spirit of God changing us into His image, the more we know experientially... The more joy we find, the more reasons we'll have to rejoice. Our joy is found in Him, in the Lord, in knowing Him, in glorifying Him, in loving Him, in showing others Him in all things. Then we can rejoice always, even in the face of suffering. Then we can be like Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Christ could have joy even in the face of unimaginable pain and suffering because he lived to glorify God in all things. And again, he calls us to walk in his same steps and to discover that same joy even when we share in his sufferings. So finally, in verse 5, we're reminded that our lives and actions affect our witness. The verse starts off with, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul used an interesting ancient Greek word, ipiakeia, that is translated reasonableness, Here in the ESV. Other translations of the Bible translate Ipiakeia as gentleness. That's probably the primary one that you hear. But you can also, you will also hear in, in some translations patience, softness, the patient mind, modesty, forbearance, the forbearing spirit, or magnanimity. The disagreement the two women were having would not be a good testimony to other believers or non-Christians. Our relationships can sometimes be challenging, but they must also be different from the world's way of living. The only way we can show this reasonableness or gentleness is because we are empowered by Christ to love and forgive when we have been wronged and and we're called to love each other radically. John 13.35 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Gentleness refers to contentment with and generosity Toward others. It can also refer to mercy or leniency toward the faults and failures of others. It can even refer to patience in someone who submits to injustice or mistreatment without retaliating. Graciousness with humility encompasses all the above. Paul wants the reasonableness, the gentleness of the Philippians publicly displayed so that people in the world can see the impact of walking with Christ, the impact that it has in someone's life. If these Philippians continued to be unreasonable with each other and inflexible, they would tear apart the unity of the church and take energy away from the main thing, the preaching of the gospel. A good example of this quality is when Jesus showed gentleness with a woman who was taken in adultery in a setup by the Jews, and they brought her to Jesus. He knew how to show a holy gentleness to her. This word describes the heart of a person who will let the Lord fight his battles. He knows the truth. This person that has gentleness, reasonableness in their lives, the Christian that has that, knows the truth of Romans 12:19, which says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Reasonableness or gentleness describes a person who is really free to let go of all of his anxieties and all the things that cause him stress because he knows, he or she knows, that the Lord will take up their cause. Reasonableness or gentleness should be shown to all men, not just certain people, to all men. Ask us all a question do others see our church as a community of people typified, characterized by loving and gentle patience toward one another? Instead of the world around us hearing that there are bitter disagreements within the church, infighting or self-centeredness, the local church should be known to everyone as a place where that doesn't happen. The world is where those things take place, not here within this community, or at least they should not be happening. The church should be someplace different, made up of people who reflect the very heart of God as seen in the life of Jesus. To put it another way, when we have disagreements and disunity, when we hold on to our grudges, our testimony before a watching, unbelieving world is broken we are showing them a disfigured picture of Christ. Or to put it positively, when we are growing in Christ-like minds and hearts that lovingly, gently, and patiently grow with one another, we live out the gospel. We show the world who Christ is. We invite them into his very heart. What then is to be gained by agreeing in the Lord and helping each other do the same? The answer is our joy and our testimony before the world. We need to be reasonable believers, not bigots in our faith. Of course, we ought to have deep convictions, but we should not be given to bigotry or promoting certain issues, always emphasizing some little point, what we need to do, is emphasize the big point, And we do have one. And that big point is the person of Christ. So let's ask ourselves how our relationships may be affecting our relationship with God and our witness to others. Who do we need to agree in the Lord with? Let's take the steps needed to be at peace with all men in order to fully rejoice in the Lord and be a witness for Him. His spirit is here to convict and empower and radically transform all areas of our lives. Paul finally concludes in verse 5 after he talks about reasonableness with the phrase, the Lord is at hand. When we live with the awareness of Jesus' soon return, It makes it all the more easy to rejoice in the Lord and to show gentleness to all men. We know that Jesus will settle every wrong at his return, and we can trust him to make things right in our falling apart world. The words at hand can refer refer to nearness in space or time. The context suggests nearness in space. Psalm 119, says, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. In other words, the Lord encompasses or surrounds all believers with his presence. What a glorious truth that is. But I think Paul also means the Lord is near in time to his physical return. In other words, Paul believed that the Lord Jesus could come At any moment. I'd like to ask the music team to come up at this time. When we think of the possibility of mistreatment as Christians for the sake of knowing Christ and loving others, no matter what they do to us, that sometimes may sound hard. And it may be. It can be. It may sound overwhelming and discouraging at times, sometimes living for the Lord. It may sound sometimes like a lifetime of suffering, of trials, serving those who don't deserve it. But we have this hope that someday, soon, the Lord will return and He will set right all wrongs. He will judge everyone perfectly. No stray word will go unchecked. No mistreatment goes unnoticed by the Lord today and it won't go unpunished. We can entrust our judgments, our disagreements, our hurts to the one who is near, our perfect Lord and judge. And despite our lifetime of being possibly a lifetime of some disappointments and pain, that will be as nothing in comparison to an eternity with Him. It will far outweigh any wrong that could be possibly done to us today. This should set us free to live like Him, to have His joy set before us, and endure all things because the Lord is at hand.